Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Trained at the North Carolina School of the Arts and the School of American Ballet, at 20 years of age, Michael Langlois was invited by Mikhail Bershnikov to join American Ballet Theater. Having seemingly made it to the top of his profession, he nevertheless spends his nights on stage at the Metropolitan Opera House, filling the gaps between the stars and the scenery, watching his colleagues dance in ways that he himself can only dream of. B+, his memoir of a 16-year career, is an unflinching view of the joys and hardships in a career in dance, as well as a behind-the-scenes look at one of the most prestigious dance companies in the world during the height of the ballet boom in this country. Get your copy of B+, now, wherever books are sold, including Amazon, Barnes & Noble, books and books, or you can click the link in this description of this episode. Winter is on the way and it's time to cozy up with new gorgeous shades from Olive and June. We have heard from so many of you that you are loving your new Olive and June Manny kits. So if you haven't checked out their fantastic products for the perfect at-home manicures, now is a great time. Olive and June just released their new winter Manny box, which includes nine exclusive new colors. This box has everything you need to celebrate with the must-paint nails of the season. This kit includes top coat, polish remover, file, buffer, their award-winning cuticle system, and more. Plus, add their dry drops to get the perfect mani in no time. Through Conversations on Dance, we are happy to offer our listeners 20% off first-time customers' orders of any Olive and June system, including this new winter box, when you use the code DANCE20 at checkout. That's DANCE20, all one word or click the link in the description of this episode. Get your holiday shopping done early, or treat yourself to some self-love. Thank you for supporting this podcast by patronizing our sponsors. I'm Rebecca King-Ferraro. And I'm Michael Sean Breeden, and you're listening to Conversations on Dance. This week on Conversations on Dance, we are joined by Jacob Jonas, director, choreographer, and artistic director of Jacob Jonas The Company. Jacob started dancing at the age of 13 when he came across a street performing group in Venice Beach, California. From there, his passion for dance expanded into various techniques and across many different mediums. He is the founding artistic director of Jacob Jonas The Company, 
a creative company that intersects dance across mediums to make original work and initiate non-traditional collaborations. Experience Jacob's newest project called Films.Dance. Through non-traditional collaborations across cultures and continents and led by Jacob's vision, this film series connects the perspectives of dance artists from a range of disciplines, dance genres, abilities, and experiences. The second round of films began on September 13th, 2021, with a new film every Monday for the following 15 weeks. All films are free and available at www.films.dance, at films.dance on Instagram and on their Facebook page. Click the link in the description of this episode to watch now. Films.dance is co-presented by four leading performing arts organizations, Los Angeles's Soraya Center for the Performing Arts, Chicago's Harris Theater, the Brooklyn Academy of Music, and Stanford Live. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Jacob. Uh, we really appreciate you um, putting in the time with us. And we wanted to start uh, with the question we ask any of our guests, uh, how you first became interested in dance. Uh, yeah, well, thanks uh, for having me. Uh, I first came interested in dance when I was in my early teens, around 13 years old. And I grew up in Los Angeles. so I'd skateboard down to the Venice Beach Boardwalk and came ac- uh, across a group of street performers uh, doing like acrobatics, break dancing, et cetera. And around the same time was having some some hard times at school. So it was just kind of craving that sense of escape to, um, you know, just try new things and just came across this group of street performers and really fell in love with the, what they were doing. And yeah, that was kind of my intro into uh, into dance. So did you start kind of just getting in with them and doing, you know, the street stuff? And then then did you start formal classes? Kind of what was the evolution from your first interest then into taking a little more seriously? Yeah, well, there was a real strong familial aspect to what they were doing, and that was kind of lacking in my home environment. My parents were divorced, and my my family life wasn't like the easiest growing up, and so there was a real sh- sense of like camaraderie and positive energy. And also, because my parents were divorced, uh, we lived in different parts of Los Angeles, uh, so a lot of my friends from school lived in a different part of town from where I was when I was with my mom's side, um, and so. I just started spending all my weekends and breaks, winter breaks, summer breaks, spring break, et cetera, down there. Um, and it was more just the energy of the leadership of the group that was there and just wanting to be like them and imitate them. And I really looked up to them. So I was just trying to learn as much as I can. Um, so that happened for like three, four years, teaching myself how to do street dance styles. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was about 16, 17, I got more into classical dance ballet, um, and you know competitive dance and started learning about how to utilize dance more emotionally um, than just to show off uh so uh it was a nice transition right yeah so it sounds like you had a pretty broad range of interests in dance you weren't limiting yourself to any one style is that right you're you're always interested in many different kinds of dance yeah that's correct i think um I was, yeah, I never wanted to be a street dancer or a hip hop dancer. I was just very open to just kind of learning as many different physical vocabularies as possible. And, uh, and I think that stayed true to practicing with through different mediums as well. I didn't want to just be a dancer or choreographer, but I was really interested in the camera. Um, and, uh, I just kind of was a sponge and really inquisitive and just wanting to learn as many different things as possible. 
Right. I'm curious what um, made you take the jump from street dancing then to ballet? It couldn't be any more different, especially in terms of like discipline, right? So what kind of got you interested in that? And what did your friends think? Did they go with you? <laughs> no. Uh, well, when I was in middle school, uh, that's kind of around the same time I started, sh- you know, street dancing um, and street performing. And then my high school had like a recreational dance company. Mm-hmm. And in order to get into the dance company, it was like modern and you know classical forms and so i had to take i they kind of toured to the middle school um doing like assemblies uh to like promote the show that they were doing and when they did that i was really inspired and i kind of reached out to one of the dancers in the company and asked what do i need to do to kind of be in the company and he said you need to take ballet classes and so um that's kind of what what my introduction to to ballet was and um, I was really intri- intrigued by it. Uh, of course, society and the larger friend group, uh, I think more so because of their own insecurities or judgments, um, what wasn't very accepting, but the more I committed to it, I think um, the more respect I kind of was was given for, for committing to doing it. Mm-hmm. So when you're exploring all these different styles and immersing yourself in dance at this young age, did you have a picture in your mind of what a career in dance might look did you have were you drawn to any one uh path in that way um it's a fascinating question I, I i knew i wanted to do it for a living and i i remember there was a very specific moment in high school because i played soccer very seriously too where soccer and dance kind of fell in the same time and i had to choose doing one or the other and i knew that I had a much better chance of getting into college through dance than through soccer. Uh, mm-hmm. And then I fell so in love with dance that I didn't even go to college. I just, <laughs> I, hated, <laughs> I hated school. And so I didn't even go to college, but um, I definitely realized at a certain point that I wanted to do it professionally. Um, and then it wasn't until later on when I started to understand the complexities of what that actually meant of the role of being a professional artist um, meant. Uh, and so that, kind of came with a a different weight and expectation. But um, I think once I got into it, um, I think also because I didn't do very well in school and I, I, I felt very at home through movement and through physical communication that, um, that I felt very understood. And I felt like there was such a authentic and honest community of people um, that I was surrounding myself with. So I didn't want to abruptly stop that for any reason. And I knew that I had to like figure out how to make a living uh, doing it. So, so I feel like a lot of young kids um, aren't given the opportunity to explore a more creative or artistic side of themselves. And the focus can can become so, um, so much about academically succeeding. And when that doesn't happen, you as a kid can be really disappointed in yourself, but it seems like around, you said 13, when you started to find this creative side of yourself that helped develop who you were as a young adult. Yeah. I think, you know, a lot of kids when they're like, you know, 10, 12, you know, 14, that early period of their teenage years, they're really, they're switching from this sense of dependence from their parents and being told what to do at what time do they do things to then really uh exploring more of their independence their creativity their individuality what separates them from their friends from their parents um and i remember that being a very specific time in my life where i was really trying to identify who i was and what my voice was and 
Um, I was just super eager to figure that out. I think today in today's society with the exposure of social media and just all these things, it can be very intimidating. There's so much pressure of comparing yourself to one another. And I think for me, finding that group of street performers was, you know, it was so raw. And also um, the the backgrounds they had, um, you know, I grew up in LA and, and, you know, they grew up in all different parts of the world from the Virgin islands to, to Europe, to, to Africa, to different parts of the States and in different, um, communities that I did. And so it was really my first exposure of like kind of traveling in a way without really leaving LA, which was really powerful, like learning different cultures and just different, um, yeah, different exposures to how people approach life and how they communicate. And it was really cool. Right. So when you started to kind of conceptualize, this is something I want to do in the future. I want to make a profession out of this. What did that look like for you? Did that look like, you know, joining a company? Did it look like freelancing? Was it kind of, I don't know, I'll just try all things and see what happens. Yeah. I mean, I've always been very interested in business. I've, I've always been very entrepreneurial driven. Um, so when I was like 16, 17, I started a book on dance photography. I had photographed over like 250 dancers and choreographers around the world. Um, uh, later on, the book never really came out because I started to learn more about the publishing world and the literary world and just the challenges there. But my kind of my instinct was to do it and to make it come to life. And I did it. And I think I've always had that drive to like come up with ideas and follow it through to the finish line. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was always kind of clear from the beginning, but, um, but yeah, I just, I always, I always had this, this drive to start something. I didn't think I would start a company so soon. Um, I had just started choreographing and submitting those choreographies to different festivals and those opportunities became much greater very soon. So when I was 21, I was given the opportunity to create a full length show and seeing the people that had won that same prize in the years prior, um, I just saw it as an opportunity to kind of start something. So I did but um you know the the street performing group that i perform with they're called the calypso tumblers the artistic director he's not called that he's called the leader but um, <laughs> it's very equivalent to what a traditional artistic director in another company is kind of that environment being on time being told what to do so i i really feel like i got that training for like six seven years of being committed to one group um i auditioned for a few companies uh one of whom was lloyd newson who runs deviate dance theater in in london um who's probably one of my favorite choreographers um and i was like 18 i had no experience the first thing that started was like a ballet bar and i got cut immediately but he said he said, like, you know, I had auditioned when I was first starting off many times. And one choreographer that cut me said, you know, uh, go off and start your own thing. And and he did. And he ended up making deviate. And that was really inspiring to me that, like, you know, I, I, I don't think I would have really thrived working for somebody else. I think I'm just too stubborn. And um, so it was a really great opportunity to just start my own thing. And, um, you know. And it seems like you have such a, a clear idea of what you want to explore artistically, and it doesn't necessarily fit into this tight format of, and now I'm in a company and I do the dances that the person teaches me done. You, you, you like to explore so many other mediums and the, the range of dance styles you're interested in are so diverse. So uh, how did you start to put this together 
um, under in in the context of having your own company? What 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 did your company initially look like in those early years? I strive for humanity. That's all I wanted. I think you know when practices. Uh, especially in university curriculums, are so focused on vocabulary or focused on history of vocabulary or, or composition. I think for me, it was like I want to be around dope people. You know, like I want to be around dope people. I want to be like inspired by them. I want to grow. I want to learn. And that's kind of been the DNA of everything I've done. I still, when I audition people, when I you know reach out to collaborators, I just want to be around people that are like unique. They're authentic, and that's really like the DNA of my work. Um, so I don't really care about a discipline or a vocabulary or style. I just want to be around people that are like super excited by what they're doing. Because I think after a while, you do it so long that it becomes very transactional. You chase money, you chase stability, you you chase um, value, like emotional value. And I think for this like family, a lot of the people that are in my company or in this community are outcasts. They're people that never really did fit in like I didn't. Um, they're people that you know, didn't really have strong parents or, or parental relationships. They didn't, they were maybe moving from school to school, didn't really have a home base. And so we're really able to f- provide that family. Um, mm-hmm. And so beyond that, I think in all the work that we do, that's really the core is that sense of family and, and, and just trying to do the best work that we can and grow and learn from it, you know? So how did the opportunity come about to actually formally create this company and get started? I'm sure there was a lot of transactional things, like you mentioned, just by nature, you still had to raise the funds and get it started. So how did that kind of start? Well, we, I submitted to a choreography competition, um, actually two in the same year, one was called the Capizio Ace Awards, and we ended up winning a, a prize. And that gave us the opportunity to create a full-length evening show the following year at the Ailey City Group Theater in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, so we kind of knew we had a year to lead up to that. And then a second prize we won. Um, when I say we, it's my my partner, Jill, and I, who uh, we started the company together, and she dances for it and helps produce all of our work. Um, one of the prizes was a one-hour mentoring session with a choreographer named Donald Bird, um, who many people know. And uh, we met in New York at Starbucks and mm-hmm. spent two hours together. And after like two hours, he was like, this isn't enough. Why don't you come to Seattle and work with us for two weeks? So we went up to Seattle. And at the end of the first week, he asked me to dance in his work. Um, and so we ended up being there for three months. So what was meant to be one hour ended up being three months. And mm-hmm. he really changed my life and Jill's life and exposed me to completely new choreographic tools um, in terms of how to compose and artistically um, approach dance and composition, but he also was teaching me a lot about nonprofit infrastructure and mm-hmm. like what it's like to build a board and all those things. And so the the formal things when we first started, um, we had a lot of relationships with a lot of different dance companies: um, Paul Taylor, Palabolus, uh, the Seven Fingers in Montreal. Um, you know, different LA based companies, um, we had built those relationships already. And so I was reaching out to them and just asking them, how do we do it properly? That's, Mm -hmm. that was like the the question, how do we do this properly? So we were getting a lot of templates um, of contracts and and marketing tools and business plans. But then we also, at the same time we were starting was around this era when social media and digital marketing was arising too. And we were like, wow, 
rather than going formal approaches with everything, let's kind of break that formality and also try to find new ways to communicate to audiences our age and not just the older audiences that tend to be in the theaters that we perform in. So we were just kind of like, there was a duality of building two brands, one that would exist in a proscenium stage and one that would exist online. And so that was kind of our focus when we were first starting. And honestly, it was really all proof of concept. We never raised a lot of money. Uh, we still haven't raised a lot of money. It's really just been proof of concept. And, you know, we really are transparent economically too. Like, you know, we try to sell enough tickets to pay the costs of those productions and we really go project-based. And mm -hmm. luckily we are able to have a little bit more success in the commercial world and the profits we make through that help fund um, the nonprofit type work and the proceeding right. work. So um, we've never really depended heavily on donations. Um, and I think that's, we try to look at ourselves like a for-profit company, although we operate as a nonprofit one. Mm -hmm. mm. I, I think it's, um, you know, it's like a somewhat prescient instinct to um, put so much emphasis on the online component of what you're uh, composing. Um, at that time, particularly, you know, older institutions were giving, you know, zero. <laughs> yeah. So what, what was that just something you were, you were witnessing and like in dance companies throughout America, you were just like, why is this not happening? And, and how can I sort of maybe fill this void? No, I wasn't looking at what they weren't doing. I was just young and eager to be a part of it. And so right. because I was already making a dance photography book, I was already very interested in dance or photography as a medium. Mm -hmm. And a lot of my friends that I had collaborated with, I was always reaching out to photographers before followings existed, like, yo, let's collaborate, let's collaborate. Mm -hmm. A lot of the photographers were down and they were popular, popular on platforms like Flickr mm -hmm. um, and other ones. And so when Instagram came around, they were really the leaders um, already. And then Instagram, a few years into their, platform had a community team and they started doing worldwide instameets so like they every like three months they were doing in dubai or in shanghai and berlin and they would announce it like three months in advance and all these like photographers which are now called influencers would gather and everyone that would follow one another would get to like meet them in person because oftentimes they were just posting sunsets or landscapes or urban um, spaces so they got to meet the people that they were following and so these kind of community events started to trickle down. Um, and a lot of my friends in New York started to do these New York City instameets um, and just kind of bridge community. And then I started doing them. I made an event called Cameras and Dancers that was really just specific to dance and photography. But then, you know, arts institutions like the Metropolitan Museum in New York found my friend Dave Krugman and was like, hey, why don't you come to the Met? And it was really a partnership that Dave initiated. And he basically started hashtag empty met and um, he would photograph the museum before and after hours and patrons that weren't that lived in New York that weren't able to afford to go to the museum could now see it uh, online and also people that were not able to afford to go to New York that lived in different parts of the world can now see it too. Right. Um, so it was like this very interesting thing that started to happen between cultural institutions and these photographers that made beautiful content. And so I was just a part of that community um, online and, and, and then people like the Getty Museum and the Whitney Museum and other big like institutions started reaching mm -hmm. out to me saying, hey, let's do partnerships. Right. Um, so I became a bit of like a marketing consulting agency uh, as well as a dance company. But um, but that was a really exciting time and working with organizations like New York City Ballet and Paul Taylor and these other ones um, internationally, like 
um, we were really kind of at the forefront of trying to figure out new ways to communicate our medium that wasn't just stage photography. It was right. really putting dancers in architectural spaces or in the geographies in which the dance companies existed. You know? Right. If you love Conversations on Dance, be sure to check out the Dance Edit Extra, a new premium audio interview series. It features insight and inspiration from the performers, choreographers, educators, and administrators who are making dance world headlines, exploring both their personal stories and their thoughts on the larger issues shaping dance today. And why is it extra? Because it's actually a companion to the Dance Edit podcast, a weekly discussion of top news stories. Subscribe to the Dance Edit Extra on Apple Podcasts and find out more about both Edit Extra and the Dance Edit podcast at thedanceedit.com slash podcast. So you already mentioned that you had an interest in film. When did this photography element then kind of evolve into film? Um, I mean, I was always interested in the camera. I was actually interested in film first um, before mm -hmm. I was in photography. And then um, I was always interested in both. And I was always kind of practicing both. And then there was a moment where my dance company started to have a little bit more success that I focused much more on trying to build my name as a proscenium choreographer. It wasn't actually until about mm -hmm. a couple of years ago when the pandemic really started to take down and the curtain came down where I was like, wow, I can really focus on my film work much more seriously because I'm not, you know, practicing in a theater. Um, mm -hmm. So I was always making film and I was always working with musicians and brands and, you know, commercial projects to facilitate other people's visions. But um, I hadn't directed many projects until like the past couple of years. Mm -hmm. So you have such a, a diverse range of interests yourself as a creator, a diverse range of interests in dance and the possibilities of dance. But what about um, your collaborators? You, you've worked with some collaborators that may not, one might not immediately spring to mind like, oh, that works with dance. Like, how do you seek out that sort of um, back and forth and and what 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 are you most looking for in someone when you're trying to make a joint creation um i think pe people that don't necessarily have a background in dance that are really excited to interpret it in new ways i think musically when we work with composers people that have like a very specific voice um and also like for all collaborators, people that are rebels, they're not traditionalists. They're people that disrupt their medium in certain ways, you know, and also my background within street culture, like I, I worked with this artist named Okaija Afroso, who's from Ghana, and he's a self-taught percussionist, guitarist, and vocalist, and grew up in the fisherman docks, you know, looking at the ocean in Ghana. And like that idea of being self-taught as an artist is very fascinating to me. Um, it's not to be against academia and against, you know, the idea of like putting your hand on the bar, but there is very much that difference between artists that do put their hand on the bar are learning the exact same ideas that everybody in that room is learning. Mm -hmm. Whereas street dancers and people that are more self-taught have to identify a completely different voice. That's kind of the form of what street dance is, is being exposed to a lot of people with their own individual styles and then being encouraged to form your own individual style. Right. Um, so I think that is 
the core of what I look for in collaborators are people that do have their own distinct voice and that approach it as a response to what we're doing. Um, and then that conversation then really develops so that I can learn about their approach and they can learn about mine. And it's really just a relationship of process that is exciting, you know? Mm -hmm. And how do you find these people? Is it all through the internet or do people come to you? Is it through word of mouth? How are you finding this person in Ghana? <laughs> we, we have a little, um, <laughs> there's only three people that work in our company, but we pretend like it's 20, but we have, of course. A, little, we have a little department in our company <laughs> called <laughs> the cultural research. Um, and it's something I kind of came up with after watching the show abstract um, on Netflix, where they really expose these different artists and different mediums and it's something i love to do is like just um you know do cultural research and just try to watch as many films and read magazines and i spent a lot of time on instagram doing research i use that like little saved button and i mm -hmm. see lighting ideas film ideas costume ideas all this stuff um my relationship with uh, and also doing other projects you know i we just did a project um Right now, uh, I premiered a new work called At Work, um, and I worked with this composer named Steve Hackman, and he brought on a 16-piece orchestra, um, and he composed digitally the piece in two weeks and then wrote all the sheet music in like three days for 16 musicians. It was insane. Wow. But I met him through, this isn't a shameless plug, but I, I, made, I, I met him working with Kanye West um, a couple of years ago, and he was brought on to help orchestrate a lot of Kanye's hip-hop beats into mm. classical orchestrations mm. and we built this really great relationship and okaja i met through um, a different performing arts conference but i i really like to go out and watch other people's work and support it and i think i just i build a lot of relationships and just that process of collaborating and working right yeah. yeah can you tell us a little bit about how jacob jonas the company pivoted during covid i think a lot of organizations as we were talking about they're so strictly tied to one idea of what their art form can be but obviously you were this is something you were exploring from the inception of the company um so it makes you a little bit more flexible with what your artistic output can be what were some of the ways that you saw these like new parameters um as a, a source of inspiration rather than just shut down yeah i you know like you said, luckily, we are always focused on the digital stage. So when the pandemic happened, it wasn't a pivot for us. We were already there and we were always focused on community, like all ships rise together. And so I was always doing things to try to make other dance companies and, and artists more visible online. Mm -hmm. um, and so when, when the pandemic did first start happening in March, um, a lot of community leaders started reaching out to me because I had the following, I had the engagement and I had the strategies and um, you know, we had a lot of Zooms together and started, you know, brainstorming what are ways to do things. So we came up with a, a initiative called a digital dance and just try to make tasks for, you know, artists at home to be able to do. Um, I then created this piece called Parked, um, where we, we invited 40 cars into a round circle and made a full length evening work in the middle and had them turn on their head beams. And it was one of the first dance performances like in the world. Um, uh, we didn't have uh, permits, but <laughs> uh, but then, but then the, the rise of films.dance happened because I was in, invited to a specific room um, with a bunch of donors, artistic leaders, you know, 
different people. And they were like, how do we make the art form more visible during this time? But the focus, I think, mainly for them was how do we make it visible in New York? And I was really thinking internationally. So I proposed this film idea where I was like, let's produce a couple films. Um, and they should be breaded around non-traditional collaborations like cameras and dancers was so that we can expose different mediums to each other mm -hmm. and it immediately got shut down. They didn't like, like it. And I was just like, all right, I'm going to go and do it by myself. And, um, I don't know why I came up with the number 15, but I did. Um, and I just set out to make 15 short films and it took an incredible amount of work, uh, and then after we did that and it came out successfully, we were like, let's do another 25. So we're kind of working on 40 films total. And uh, it's been it's been the most incredible project to be able to connect with people internationally and learn about different cultures in, in Africa and Asia and Brazil and just all over the world. Um, so that was really our pivot was remotely producing projects um, from from home and and just trying to make the art form visible while the theaters are closed. Right. How directly involved are you in, um, you know, the major decisions around each of these films, like what the um, location setting will be, who, the artists that are involved, like how, how much do you personally have to dictate that? Everything. I'm involved. Wow. <laughs> Me and my wow. team, we find every collaborator, we pair them together, we schedule all the rehearsals that they have virtually. Um, I find the composer, I introduce the composer to the director and the choreographer. When I'm talking to the director, we build treatments that are like anywhere between 15 to 45 page like decks, mm -hmm. um, where we talk about the location, the cinematography, the shot list, all of it. So wow. we're very, very hands-on. And then also in post-production, we go through like three rounds of feedback where the director and editors have to submit each draft. And then we provide very detailed feedback until they send out another draft with revised, um, you know, notes and, and, and then we work with them through, through posts. So color correcting, sound mixing, everything. Um, so we're incredibly hands-on and oftentimes we find all the collaborators, uh, sometimes directors have their own teams in place. Um, but yeah, we're very hands-on and also give them deadlines so that they kind of finish on time. Um, mm -hmm. Tried to. <laughs> to, to me, the most fascinating component of it is the location scouting, because if you watch uh, a trailer for it, like the series, it's just so breathtakingly diverse. Again, it's like you have the diversity of artists, of location, of um, medium and style. It's it's um, so you just see all these like really vivid, different colorings um, throughout each location. How, how do you um how do you manage to find that diversity in, within the locations as well i think the the main goal is because we were shooting in places like shanghai or in mm -hmm. kaduna nigeria or in israel or these different places i was really talking to the directors that like i wanted the location to act as a character in addition mm -hmm. to the, mm -hmm. the work and so so often we see dance companies tour to our cities and then they're invited into our city. But I really wanted the reverse to happen with these films that the audiences were actually invited into their communities and not just through the, the, the physical location, but also through the sound. How do we incorporate the language of um, Chinese or of, of, you know, Portuguese or Spanish or like, how do we incorporate these different places? And also just with all the news around global warming, 
Um, and, and knowing that so much of dance normally exists inside a theater, I was like, how do we really expose the natural environments that these locations are in so that we feel like a tourist when we watch them? Mm-hmm. Um, and we really feel like we're in the backyard of these places. Uh, so that was really expressed with all the directors. And so as they would then go location scout, um, they would submit a lot of different ideas and, mm-hmm. um, we really wanted to play between urban environments and natural environments, but mm-hmm. we catered much more towards natural environments so that we can just try to find what these spaces would look like in these mm-hmm. people's backyards, you know? I think, yeah, I, I mean, I love that choice. The natural environments are so beautiful and they're not something, you know, these are non-traditional um, backgrounds for dance. So it's mm-hmm. something that I think, you know, certainly most of the audience will not have ever seen before in that way. So it is a, a new way of presenting dance. I think it's really beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. So when did the first, cause the first round was 15 films, right? When was, when did that happen? And what did you kind of learn from that process then that you're taking into this current second round that is ongoing? Well, the first thing I did was reach out to my friends. Um, and uh, the word diverse is used a lot. And I think a lot of that is because, I really like this idea of like diversity of thought and mm-hmm. because I come from a background of dance where I've been very interested in many styles, I wanted to build like a small committee of people that come from those different styles. So we brought two dancers on from New York city ballet that aren't just dancers, but are also like filmmakers and choreographers. Mm-hmm. I brought on a circus artist from Montreal. I brought on a break dancer who also works with Forsyth. You know, I brought on all these different people from different backgrounds and formed this committee and kind of told them what the idea was and everyone started submitting ideas. And obviously it's very easy to start making 15 films in New York or in LA or, in right. but then yeah. it was like, how do we actually make them in all these different locations and find, even if we found dancers, how do we find the right choreographers to pair with the dancers? And once we find those people, how do we find the filmmakers in those cities? So that research alone like finding directors in Amsterdam and then finding cinematographers in Amsterdam. Like it, it just took a lot of work and research. Um, but I think the thing that was most learned was how to communicate with artists and you're dealing with over hundreds of personalities that are all, you know, in it to make the best work that they can. And a lot of them take things personally. A lot of them aren't the best communicators. A lot of them are incredible communicators. And so what I learned through my work of doing it, in addition to curating, it was how to communicate well so that people felt valued, they felt understood, but they also were able to let go of some of the things that were so strong to them so that other people's voices felt valued too. Um, uh, so that was really exciting for me, just kind of taking on a new role, like producing at that level um, mm-hmm. and not physically being on set and kind of giving the autonomy of trust to them so that I knew that they would make a good product. I think that was one of the most exciting things was like the first couple films coming in and realizing that they were like unreal. Um, right. uh, and that was really special. And I think moving forward, it's just continuing the 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 cultivation of, of new ideas. Um, you know, just of new ideas of how to approach these collaborations in a new way so that each film continues to feel new, you know? Right. So obviously I think a lot of your career is marked by um, this ambition and drive to um, push artistic boundaries, but this, the scale and scope of this feels pretty large, but would you say this is the, the most ambitious project you've taken on to date? Um. 
in its entirety in terms of time commitment and hours and collaborators, yes. Um, in terms of ambition uh, and pressure, no, uh, but it's it's very close. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, it's it's definitely ambitious. And I think one of my skills and strengths is having a, na- a naive ambition um, to do things. Uh, sometimes, I think 99% of times that, that helps me. And there's sometimes where it can be a curse. But overall, I think we're always thrown into situations, regardless of the success, that we learn something from it. And that helps inform the next approach we take to doing something else, you know. Yeah. Tell us how uh, Stanford Live got involved in this project and what their uh, support has meant for you moving forward with this um, really huge undertaking. Yeah, we, you know, the first round we did it, we, we, we financially needed help to accommodate paying for the resources of these films. And so we reached out to some theaters for the first round, many of whom that I had relationships with already. And they were just so excited to be on board. Um, And it's not just about the distribution of the films, but the internal dialogue with the theaters and the administrators of like, how is our field moving forward too? Um, And then as we started building out this next round, we had reached out to a few more theaters and we were really lucky to get, in addition to the Soraya in Los Angeles and the Harris Theater in Chicago, we brought on BAM and Stanford Live. And, um, you know, Chris just was, you know, incredible in his support and his interest to be a part of the project and yeah the conversation in addition to just releasing the films was like you know how do we how do we get these films out there how do we introduce it to our audiences that are kind of at home or feel uneasy about going back to the theater and mm-hmm. um also how do we introduce new new artists to our venues that aren't you know just you know the bigger name artists that tend to tour but like these newer emerging voices and so that was kind of one of the things, but they all helped uh, with support, um, not just administrative resources, but a little bit of financial support too. Um, and that support helped cover some of the expenses for the films that we made. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, And so. it's completely free to watch, right? You can watch all of the films and how can people access them? Uh, on our website, films.dance, on our Instagram, uh, at films.dance, uh, those are the main two. And then obviously on Vimeo and Facebook and YouTube, uh, yeah, those are kind of the main platforms that we put it all out there. Um, okay. So just for our last question, what do you, what do you hope the audience, um, their biggest takeaway is from this project? What do you hope they go away, um, feeling or, or considering about art? just they're inspired you know i think that's the goal i know very well when i go to shows and i'm like back in the car and i'm driving home that that drive is always responsive to what my experience was uh whether i really admired it and i want to do exactly everything like it or i want nothing to do (laughs) it still motivates me to do something else right um but regardless it made me feel something and i think that level of humanity and feeling i think is less frequently talked about in our field, but like just feeling about like, like just this deep feeling of humanity, if it encourages people to travel or want to learn about different cultures, if it excites people about new artists and they want to follow them. Um, But overall, like just that they, they walk away feeling inspired or responsive um, to what they saw, you know? Yeah. And how much longer will these films be coming out? There's one per week, correct? Through when is the last date? For this round of 15, it'll go through December 20th, and then we'll take a little break for the holidays and then probably start releasing another round of 10 in the new year. Um, But we're continuing to make them for now. Uh, uh, 
we have less less pressure on the gas, but we are still pushing them out. But as more opportunities come to us with live work, we're not able to put all our time and energy into it, but we're going to continue to do it for as long as we can. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And we hope that all of our audience uh, members uh, go check out the the films. We certainly will be. And uh, we can't wait to see what you have uh, in store next as well. Yes. Awesome. Well, thanks for the opportunity. And thank you guys for putting on this podcast. Appreciate it. (laughs) Thanks for your time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.